WPS Humanities Podcast, Well Spoken, and today we'll be talking about In Defence of Cinderella. I'm Sophia, and I'm here with... Faba, Adam, Zena, Katrina, Lucy. So, Cinderella is a really famous fairy tale. It's probably the most well-known, and she's one of the most well-known Disney princesses. Zena, could you please tell me more about the story? Um, so, Cinderella is an anti-feminist story uh, because of the representation of gender inequality through patriarchy and objectification. Patriarchy, according to Joe Santillian of the University of California, is a system where male-dominated structures and social arrangement cause oppression of women. This is exhibited in Cinderella through the concept of her living happily ever after, after getting married to the prince. In this context, Cinderella fulfills the damsel in distress archetype, whereas the prince is represented as the hero. Regardless of the fact that he had no role to play in her initial rebellion from her family and her will um, and desire to change her situation, the story is sort of wrapped up as if her deep-rooted issues disappeared through the arrival of a male figure. In addition to this, Cinderella is objectified through her role as the winner of the prince's affections because of her beauty. The prince wishes to dance with her just because he found her the most attractive. and also he fails to ask her of her name uh, and about her life, which is shown through his difficulties in finding her after the ball. Okay, so you mentioned that Cinderella is an anti-feminist story, and um, for so many decades, especially the golden age Disney princesses, as they're known, which is Snow White, Cinderella, and Aurora, they've been criticised heavily as being sort of these terrible role models for young girls and I think one of the things we should explore is definitely their flaws but also this idea that are they truly as bad a role model for young girls as people say so does anyone have any thoughts on that? I think the presentation of the princesses is far from perfect. Uh, Ironically they're sort of presented as these perfect ideals, they've all got stereotypically beautiful faces and they've all got skinny waists etc etc which is such a bad representation of all girls for young girls and boys to be to be seeing but in contrast to this you also see that while their actual presentation outwardly may not be great the moral stories behind it are often more acceptable like their their good virtues versus the ugly sisters who are narcissistic and greedy versus the the hard work of cinderella i think we can almost rectify them a little bit in that sense i think based on morals they all three of them of course of the three cinderella has probably the best morals the most clear-cut morals of you know being kind and you know divine retribution or some sort of karma will come to um, people who have wronged you but um, of course they are a product of their time we have to remember that these were written in the 30s through 50s Cinderella coming out in 51 or 54 I can't remember Um, and of course gender stereotypes and gender roles were much different back then Uh, I think what what Disney was trying to go for I don't know know who it was but um, was kind of it wasn't thinking about the sort of role of Cinderella and the role of women in it. He was kind of focusing on the fact that he wanted children to see her as 
kind, as good, as um, beautiful inside, even though she was beautiful on the outside as well, but as a morally good character, a great role model for girls. He wasn't really thinking about, you know, the situation she went through. She was thinking of how she persevered through the situation, through being kind and being a good person. So, Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with what the both of you said when it comes to the morals behind these stories. I think one thing that lets these princesses down is the fact that so many people focus on almost the surface of the movie, this idea that, oh, um, you know, like you were saying, skinny waists and very beautiful and almost very passive. Um, but when you actually do go deeper under the surface of the movie, I think you are met with these princesses who did persevere through a lot of their hardships and struggles. I think especially in regards to Cinderella, you know, we have to understand that she was an abuse victim. She had a very abusive family and there's a scene within Cinderella which I think is quite poignant. It's when the stepsisters destroy her dress and as as they're about to destroy it just before that, Cinderella's stepmother approaches her and she visibly shrinks back showing that there could have potentially been genuine physical abuse. I mean, that's a natural re reaction or response, you know, flinching, going back when someone approaches you if they have been physically abusive. And obviously we don't know that, um, and that might be reading too much into it, but the fact that she's still so kind to her sisters and to her stepmother and the fact that she, um, you know, she, she can be good throughout that entire situation, I still think is a very positive attribute of her character. And I think it's a very strong attribute of her character. And I don't think that should be brushed aside just because we can't seem to look past the surface. And, and yeah, to just mirror what you said, I think 100% if we, we have to take a, a different viewpoint on this um, because they are all the characters falling into an archetype. You know, one hundred percent. She has to be the the good heroine, the person everybody roots for, to then be a foil for you know evil stepsisters to make them look worse. Um, and as a anti-feminist story, I think we also have to look at the flip side of things and look at you know the presentation of the prince and how the prince is present presented. I mean, he, he doesn't re even have a name. He is Prince Charming. Um, he he doesn't have any scenes which give any character to him. At least Cinderella gets you know to be kind and good. The prince is just an archetype of a, of a prince. He is the Prince Charming, the one who Cinderella marries. Um, and although, you know, we're not getting great representation for Cinderella in, in regards to having a complex, um, you know, personality, a, a real human personality, I think we have to remember that these, these are stereotypes, these are for kids, and they want to see, you know, good, they want to see bad, they want to see the prince, they want to see the princess, and that's just kind of how Disney kind of worked for a very long time up until recently when they've only started out to become with, like, you know, Frozen and more modern Disney movies which show, you know, love in a different way, you know, you know, familiarity love, you know, brothers and sisters and, you know, complex longing and, you know, Elsa not being satisfied with her life, you know. So I think we have to bear that in mind. Um, I think also that because these films are made primarily for children and children can only understand so much about the world, I think the way in which they're presented almost as a metaphor for the prevalence of good over evil is one which 
children can grasp really easily visually and I think that's one of the reasons why Disney has made like for example the witch who's who's green and hunched over and has a long nose and is covered in a black cape versus the princess who is like we've said all these stereotypical beauty ideals um, but I wonder how damaging that actually is to kids who who yes see the one side of the princess as being good versus the evil um, but then them learning in response to that that good and evil being presented in such a visual way they actually learn that being good is to be beautiful and being bad is to be what is considered by society ugly I don't think she was considered beautiful just because of the way she looked I think she was considered beautiful because of the way she presented herself and yeah. through her actions as well so I think because it's a kid's story it teaches like young kids especially girls that you should always be kind and nice even if people like ugly, the ugly stepsisters are horrible to you because in the end which we see she gets she gets she gets freed from the abusiveness so i think it's just teaches kids that you should always be try to be kind and nice even if you don't necessarily feel like it's going to do anything if you look at modern interpretations of cinderella and live action interpretations the ugly stepsisters are not stereotypically ugly they're not people you look at and say they are by eurocentric standards ugly they, they are beautiful women the ugly has been changed over time from what i think might have been a, a physical attribute just something which is more inside that they are ugly at heart because they are they are cruel and they are mean to cinderella and i think um that's what i think disney was trying to get at mainly if you look at the film anastasia and drusilla are not ugly they're not ugly they're not as beautiful as cinderella by eurocentric standards but they are they're not ugly what makes them ugly is their personality yeah, absolutely. And I think as well we see that in Snow White, who I have to say is a very forgotten Disney princess. <laughs> um, but we have in the beginning the evil queen. Now, I've watched this movie so many times. I'm such a huge Disney fan. And anytime I watch this movie, I don't think the evil queen is actually ugly. Like when you look at her in her genuine form, she's actually a very beautiful woman. And that's what I think that's one of the things I really like about Snow White, this idea that throughout the entire movie, Disney's reinforcing that kindness equals beauty because it is Snow White's kindness that saves her from the huntsman. It's her kindness that uh, convinces the dwarves to help her. It's her kindness that really, well, obviously the prince and that is very problematic. We could talk about that. But, <laughs> um, you know, it is one of the main things in that is that it's her kindness you know when um the evil queen dresses her in rags to try and diminish her beauty and then she goes to the mirror and she you know she asks mirror who is the fairest of them all and the mirror responds with snow white you know saying nothing can hide her gentle grace and it's showing that really kindness is what makes a person beautiful it's these wonderful positive characteristics that we can see of the princesses that is what contributes to their beauty and one thing that I find interesting is that you know a lot of these traits that the Disney princesses have tend to be stereotypically feminine traits so they they tend to be kind they tend to be 
um, nice. And it shouldn't be a stereotypically feminine thing. That should just be a human thing. And obviously we could do an entire other podcast on that. But um, it is a stereotypically feminine trait. And it's interesting that they get bashed for that. Their niceness, their positivity is either seen as naivety, ignorance, being a pushover, for example. And then in later renditions of the Disney princess archetype, you see them adopt much more masculine traits and then they're being praised for being these strong independent heroines. And it's kind of interesting, this idea that we're still reinforcing, it seems, to young girls that to get anywhere in life, you need to adopt these masculine traits to be seen as equal. I think um, the way in which the Disney princesses are presented sort of goes along with, for example, when we had back in the 1950s when society was much more about traditional values, we see more of the, like you said, um, the traditional sort of feminine values of the princesses. And then later on, Disney is trying to again adapt to the society. Um, And I guess, in what way do you think the children who are viewing these in, in either society are going to be affected by these two, for example, people who've seen both films, who've lived through both eras of the Disney uh, world, in what way do you think that's going to affect people's views of these princesses and views of themselves? Because I think people tend to look at themselves almost as protagonists, just mm-hmm. just as that's the way we identify with stories as humans. In what way do you think that will be positive or negative uh, for the viewer? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's it's a good point looking at yourself as the protagonist in these stories and how that uh, affects you and your own perception of good and evil, but not only that, beauty as well. And I suppose the easiest thing that I can do in answer to that question is really just think about how I felt when I watched them as a child. I think as you get older, you know, appearance becomes... such a more important factor in a person's life you all of a sudden realize that you look a certain way and that society wants you to look a certain way and if you don't meet that then you're not beautiful but I think as a five-year-old a six-year-old that idea of appearance wasn't in my mind it wasn't you know I wasn't thinking oh uh pale fair skin skinny waist blonde hair or that all that that's what made one beautiful in fact when I was watching these films it was more of this idea that oh they're just really really nice and they're really really kind and um you know they they do get the prince which I don't think is wrong you know this idea that uh women can find love and be the the creators of their own destiny but um, definitely for me, appearance wasn't a huge factor. It's as I get older that, you know, and, and appearance becomes more and more of a focus. I look back and I think, you know, people start to look back and think, well, this is such a negative image because obviously they have these tiny waists and they have um, this very stereotypically beautiful appearance uh, dependent on, on standards of a society. But it's not the fact that, but it, like that only, that realization only came as I got older. And I think 
that's where a lot of the hate comes from, especially in regards to their appearance. That as we grow up, or as you know, you get older, you get more aware of what society would like you to look like, especially for women, you know, this objectification and the fact that girls are greatly judged by how beautiful they are, that women are judged by their appearance. Um, you look back and you think, well, that was a really problematic image, but whilst watching it as a child, it's not, I didn't connect those two dots. I don't know if that's the same for everybody else, but... But I feel that's almost even more problematic that the children aren't able to realise that there are further implications of these stories, that there is a societal beauty standard that is pushed forward within these stories that they aren't able to realise as kids. And so as they get older, they're able to look back in retrospect and realise that it was problematic. But that doesn't mean it wasn't problematic as children. It means that they only realised that as they got older. But children are really impressionable. And the things you put forward to them. I know I wasn't exposed to much television when I was younger at all. Um, and the only Disney programs I watched were in Spanish. And I used to hate that because I couldn't understand what they were saying. But I think maybe even more so because I just couldn't understand what they were saying. All I was watching was these one ugly character, stereotypically ugly character, one stereotypically beautiful character, and a prince comes in and lives happily ever after. And I think watching that as a kid, I think almost I did have this idea of beauty standards from a, perhaps a younger age than you, I don't know. Because I remember feeling that when I was a kid quite strongly. Yeah. So I don't know where that... Well, for me, I, I think we're kind of lucky in, in the sense of when we grew up that we were growing up when you know the renaissance of Disney was happening. It was just it was just kind of getting towards the end of it, and we had you know we had much stronger Disney characters. We had you know the first ever Native American representation. We had Pocahontas, not the greatest representation in hindsight. We had some <laughs> representation. Um, you know um, we had uh, you know Beauty and the Beast with Belle. We had um, most notably probably Mulan, which I think probably the first Asian character, I'd like to say it was, don't quote me on that. Um, but I, I was lucky that I grew up with that. That being said, I ended up loving Sleeping Beauty and Aurora is my favourite fairy tale, which is quite anti-feminist of me, but it was my favourite story and personally from my perspective, I never really saw the problem with it. I, I think I only started to realise when, when you know, you'd talk to your friends about all what you used to like as a kid and they'd be like oh I was all for Mulan and for strength and for you know fighting and I was like I love those stories but personally I didn't want to identify with them because I wasn't a masculine girl I wasn't somebody who wanted to fight who wanted to um any sort of physical violence I was somebody who wanted you know I, I did as a kid I wanted that happily ever after I wanted you know to feel beautiful and that and that's what kind of resonated with Sleeping Beauty for me. I didn't realise, it didn't really affect me in the same way. I didn't really realise that, looking back on it, she she goes to sleep for a few years and then it's brought back <laughs> by a prince and it's not, it's not the greatest representation. Um, but as a kid, it didn't affect me in the way I think we're talking about. Um, I, I didn't have this, or, or not consciously, I didn't have this bias towards beautiful people because, you know, I think I took a lot of inspiration from people in my family and all, and all this sort of stuff, but um, 
I, I, I did have access to every single, you know, one of the Disney films. But that and um, Beauty and the Beast is what got... And Beauty and the Beast is one of Disney's, I think, one of their best. <laughs> because I think it's the first time they kind of addressed straightforward the sort of being beautiful inside and Belle not being a, a pushover. I don't like that word. But the problem arises when people try and compare, you know, later Disney princesses with early Disney princesses and say, oh, the, all the early Disney princesses, they were naive and they, they were pushovers. And like you said, they were... They were bad representation for young girls. They're not bad representation. I just think they're, they're a different, they're a different time of different girls. They're both beautiful inside and out. That's the, the typical Disney trait that, that all the Disney princesses are kind and caring people. It's just that they're from a different time and a different period. I think we have to take that into account. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I think what you're saying about Beauty and the Beast, I think it's a good example because it does actually look at the, the outward appearances of for example, your handsome prince, who's actually a beast. He's he's mm -hmm. outwardly not like he's not even human, and yet he has these human characteristics that are eventually brought out by the end of the. I know I said novel then, <laughs> the, the end of the film, um, and I think that's a good way to show kids that people do do bad things and can do bad things, but that doesn't make them a bad person. And certainly the outward appearance does not make them a bad person. And, like, yeah, it's a good story. And I think in comparison to something like Aurora, which is harder to see the moral message of it, I think. And also that, that Belle herself is, is this humble. I remember my dad reading the story to me when I was younger. Uh, and I remember being so taken aback because she had, like, seven siblings or something and the father goes off and has a holiday or I don't know where he goes but all her siblings are asking for all of these massive and marvellous gifts and she asks for a single rose and I thought that was like that's what struck me and I guess hearing these stories fairy tales when I was listening to them and being read them rather than seeing them in a film I guess my image of these these princesses was more to do with their virtues, because I couldn't see their outward appearance through a novel, but I know that I did see them through other means. And that's where I sort of got these two, almost the film Cinderella to me is a completely different Cinderella than I read in a book. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I definitely strongly agree with that, like with what you both said with um, Beauty and the Beast being such a good representation. Um, of of this idea that it's not just, um, you know, outward looks. It really literally did tackle don't judge a book by its cover um, and looked at, you know, it was the fact that he changed his heart that got rid of this ugly outward appearance. It was his love for Belle and it was this, you know, this beautiful, complete change in him that, that brings about um, his princely form again um, and I like the idea of the fact that you know there can be there is a prince or a princess in in almost everyone uh, it's it's not purely the outward appearance of them but also the characteristics that they show um, and I think that is such an important message to to young children um, but I think like you were saying, Katrina, that 
it is different representation. The early Disney princesses are definitely a product of their time, just like the newer Disney princesses are a product of right now when the ideals and beliefs we hold now. Um, and obviously you could you can talk about all the very problematic things that are definitely within the older um, Disney Disney princess films because there are definitely issues like the issue with consent and in everything there as well. And when you look at the original fairy tales they're based on, it's a bit it's very dodgy. <laughs> um, but I think we should bring up Ariel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe we should talk about that next. But um, I also do agree with this idea that it is different representation as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should completely brush aside um, these wonderful inward characteristics for outward bravery and and you know for a girl holding a sword in her hand. I think that's really important to show young girls that yeah you can fight the dragon if you want to, but um, that's not all you have to do to be a princess. A princess isn't just strong and courageous on the outside, but also on the inside, she's just as beautiful. And I think that when you, you look past the flaws of the early Disney princesses, you definitely do see that, and I think that's a positive of them. I don't think it's fair the the harsh criticism they get. I don't think they're wholly terrible. I think like I've been saying, you know, there's definitely things that we can discuss that needs addressing. But um at the exact same time, I think that they're definitely useful to young girls and there needs to be this balance between uh, an inward appearance just as much as well, we don't really need to focus on the outward appearance, but the fact that you can be strong and courageous on the outside, just that like you can be strong and courageous on the inside. I think um, what you're talking about, the, like we mentioned earlier, the different time periods in which Disney has evolved through. Um, I've been reading for my EPQ this book by a guy called, ironically, Christopher Booker. Um, <laughs> but he um, lays out these seven basic plots that are meant to underlie basically every story that's ever existed, bar a few. Um, and a lot of them end in this sort of happily ever after. And he does mention quite a lot of the time um, having a kingdom to oneself at the end of a novel or any sort of story, uh, a lot of the time you do see someone has dominion over a kingdom and power over their lives, which we see a lot of the time in Disney movies, if not all of the time. So I wonder if there is actually that much of a difference between the early Disney stories and the later ones in, in the sense that the plot itself is quite consistent throughout time and I think that's meant to show us as humans we favour this plot because we want to see that we can do it and that going back to this idea that we we identify with the protagonist we want to see and be reassured that we will have dominion over some sort of kingdom in our lives whether that's work life whether that's romantic life whether for a child that might just be like a, a game at school or something. I think Disney definitely listened to the criticism and definitely shifted with the times. You know, early 90s was a really big time for Disney and around that time. 
um, we did get a big shift from you know classic Disney princesses. Um, again, adapting the very male traits. Kind of One thing that I do also want to bring attention to is the lines for these characters. Uh, I was reading an article in preparation for this podcast, and the lines for the earlier Disney Princess movies, you know, it was a very female-dominated speech. So women definitely spoke a lot more than men. I mean, in Cinderella, I think the prince says, like, three words. And then, <laughs> and then we, we kind of move on from him. Um, the, the, the characters in Cinderella who are male who speak the most are probably uh, the king and then the duke. Um, and obviously it's important about the dialogue of these characters and what they're actually talking about, but just knowing that it is, it was uh, women who were speaking the most in these early Disney princess films. When we got Ariel, there was, I think, maybe 50 years between the last Disney princess movie, which was Sleeping Beauty and then Ariel. Uh, we got a huge shift in that where all of a sudden women spoke a lot less than men did. And like I said, it, it is really important that we do think about the dialogue of these characters and what they are talking about. But this idea that, again, probably reinforcing to young girls that you should speak less than your male counterparts. I don't know much about the story of Ariel, so I don't really want to comment on it. But doesn't she intentionally lose her voice to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about Yeah. If this was this was my point I remember my point, thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was that um Disney kind of I think they went a little bit too far. I think they overcompensated for their problems of the past and they completely flipped everything on its head and it kind of became the women always saving the men and you we look at Ariel. Ariel gives away her voice of course because she wants a man, like you do. And um, <laughs> yes, <you do. laughs> and what happens is at the end, if you if you watch the ending, it ends up with Ariel having to save the prince. Same with Mulan. Mulan ends up having to save the whole of China, and her <laughs> prince. Um, Pocahontas she saves she saves um, John Smith by sending him back in a little boat. Um, and this is the the shift which Disney made, but there was no real reason for this shift except from trying to overcompensate for the, the amount of female damsel in distress and sort of stuff they did earlier on. Um, and I think they've kind of evened it out now. I mean, they're, they even left out... I think they they tried their best to leave out a love interest for Frozen, but they kind of failed with Hans, to, with Kristoff, um, didn't they? But at least we did get um, a subversion in, in the prince, that the prince wasn't the good prince, he was a bad prince, and I kind of liked that a lot. I did like Moana, though. I think it's one of the first films where we haven't got a male love interest. We've got a big guy who's helping out <laughs> on a little boat. Um, we also got Tiana. Uh, again, Tiana is one of the most just, just it's beautiful. Just go, just go watch, the whole go watch Tiana. <laughs> Tiana is amazing. Again, Tiana saves um, Naveen in the end. <laughs> and um, this shift, I think it was a needed shift, but I don't think it was it needed to be as dramatic as it was. Um, but again, this is it's kind of the, the stereotype that it's always the women saving the men again. So I think, I think we've evened it out now. <laughs> but um, 
again over time we have to bear in mind that Disney is trying to rectify their problems they are trying to change themselves they are constantly evolving Disney um, and hopefully in the future we'll get some better representation for women in comparison to like other representations of fairy tales because Disney isn't the be all and end all of entire like the entire yeah. fairy tales everywhere <laughs> um, I think what do, well, what do you think about that? But um, people always, you say fairy tale and people are like, oh, Disney. But yeah. there's so many more. Like, I think as a kid, at least, I would have preferred to hear the, the tragic tale of The Little Mermaid as told by Hans Christian Andersen rather than the, <laughs> um, as morbid as that seems. It just, it's a <laughs> bit more interesting. Um, uh, whereas the Disney one, which is all light and fluffy, which is great. And I would have loved to see that too, but I think there's so many other ways in which to portray morals to children um, that is Disney necessarily the optimum way to do that or not? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there are many other studios out there. Disney's kind of, you know, got a monopoly, especially at the moment, considering mm -hmm. they've bought everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, you also have like Studio Ghibli, for example. Oh, um, I love those. And oh, they're such amazing movies. If you don't know them, do go check them out. They're really, really nice. Um, but the the idea that the female representation in those movies compared to Disney movies is very, very different. Um, and it does. It's definitely the fact that it's the female character who is you know, coming in and saying, I think there's a lot of equality between the male and female characters. And the thing I think about Disney is that it is obviously the creator of the Disney princess. So this is a very famous uh, archetype throughout the world. There are many, many people who know the Disney princess. Disney has, they have like a, a set role that the Disney princess plays as a set story that she's in. And I think it has shifted with Raya and the Last Dragon. If you haven't seen that movie, go check it out. It's a really good movie. And in Raya and the Last Dragon, uh, there isn't at all a, a, like a love interest or a, really a male character. The only main male character we get is Raya's father. Um, there are definitely male characters there, but they're not the main focal point. It's definitely Raya and Namari and Namari's mother. And they are the the main the main women within this film. Um that that lead the dialogue and everything in it. And you know, there is this equality with between the male characters and the female characters but I think because Disney is so known and so well renowned there is a certain responsibility that they have which I think that we, I think they've adhered to uh, this idea that um, you know there needs to be definitely a shift in the conversation and um, more equality between their characters but I think it the thing is Disney's just so well known like you said when people think of fairy tales they think of oh Disney uh, 
any any fairy tale really if you mention Cinderella oh Disney's 1950s Cinderella um, if you mention Snow White oh Disney Snow White I think what I was saying with the whole fairy tale thing I think for some people having the idea of a fairy tale is very comforting for them because they might not have be experienced that kind of happiness or joy that the people in the fairy tale have experienced so maybe they look at the fairy tale and just give them that sort of happiness even if it's short-lived for some people yeah absolutely i mm. think that you know with a lot of these stories and with stories in general a lot of them do represent hope for a lot of people and i mean the disney stories are definitely probably the most famous of the fairy tales that you're going to find and i think that yeah for a lot of for a lot of people they see the the happily ever after and and they see uh you know from rags to riches really and it does become a driving point for them. I remember hearing one story about a young boy who was in a who was in a very abusive household, and um, someone in his house was watching Cinderella, and he watched. I think he managed to watch from like halfway to the end of it, and he he, he said that just watching that gave me hope that I'd get out one day, mm -hmm. and I find that very very touching. This idea that they as as problematic as the representation is and you know can be in these movies i do think we speak from a very privileged position um hopefully no one here is from an abusive household or has been in such a situation but um the you know for for a lot of people looking at these films is sort of you know a hope it's like yeah okay i get it she's she's very beautiful and, and this and that but i don't care about that i care about the fact that she gets out and i just want to get out so that's the part that resonates most with some people and i think that's one of the things with stories really isn't it they're so subjective they're not there's no there aren't many objective principles within these stories because everyone who reads them or watches them comes from a very different background and I think for a lot of people when they see that coming from you know an abusive home using that that young boy as an example um it, it gives them hope that there will be a happy ending eventually and they just kind of have to get there I think that's great that it gives them hope and I think that's um that's a really good point about Disney that even as a kid not having really heard much about I knew the stories whether or not I'd read them or watched them um, but the actual way because people put so much hope in these stories um, because I think as humans we're sort of predisposed to put hope in these stories to, to learn about the society around us I think almost then it's Disney's responsibility to make the representations and the, the implications of these, these plots which are great to do with that aspect of hope and the moral aspect uh, a lot of the time. I think because we also have a disposition to associate what we see within the plot and then associate the visual aspects with it, then children can be associating 
cope with beauty, outward beauty, and all these other things with the outward appearances of the characters. And I guess as much as it gives them hope, and I think that's a great thing that Disney does, Disney also then has a responsibility to show that this hope can come to not just people who are like stereotypically beautiful, to not just people who marry a rich prince. It can happen to anyone, and I think over the time it has gotten better, but they almost make these fantastical realms in which princes and princesses live happily ever after too unrealistic for real life. And I, th I wish they would present them better so that people can identify with them more because almost this hope is sort of a, a dream to some people, people who come from like backgrounds that aren't so idealistic as ours, um, subjectively of course. Um, I think if Disney spoke to the wider population and didn't always have a character from, for example, the, the presentation of ethnic backgrounds in the original Disney films wasn't great. We can say that for sure. Um, and now that it sort of is getting better at speaking to more people, uh, this portrayal of hope is a lot more easy to see. Mm, yeah. Um, I think... I'm going to counter your point. <laughs> um, I think one of the main points of Disney is to be fantastical. Yeah. I think they're supposed to inspire magic and imagination and dreams. I think that's what their company was founded on and I think that's one of the things they're really trying to drive. I think if we were to get rid of that aspect within these Disney films, I think we would get rid of of what makes Disney Disney. And, you know, I, I'd hope that people can tell that, yes, this is a very fantastical version of real life. Like, this isn't going to happen in real life. But, like, you know, um, with that young boy, obviously he doesn't really have any reason to identify with Cinderella other than the fact that she was also in an abusive situation. I think it's this idea that um, it's really, it's just about, it, it's, it's not just getting saved by a prince. I think it was just the fact that it was a happily ever after and the fact that she manages to escape. Um, I think if, you know, if we start calling upon these studios to make their movies very realistic. I think we get rid of one of the main aspects of these companies, which I think is important that they do keep this magic and this fantastical nature about them. Um, I agree with what you're saying that, you know, representation of how they go about this could be better and that, you know, we don't need to constantly reinforce certain stereotypes, but I think they are based around and upon this element of magic. And, you know, y you would hope that people would recognise that I'm probably not going to 
be saved by a prince or I'm, I'm not going to be rescued by a princess. Unfortunately, I don't think there are many princess, princes in the world who are going to come at your door and be like, just just come away with me. Just, <laughs> just try on the shoe. <laughs> just then... try on the shoe. If it fits, I'll, I'll take you to my palace. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> or who will come riding on a white horse and be like, let's go. But um, I think it is, it's just this idea that there is such thing as a happily ever after. And I, I suppose that sort of, you know, I, I guess you'd hope that that's what people are putting their hope in, this idea of the yeah. happily ever after, not that someone's going to give you the happily ever after. And I suppose in that respect, then Disney's done a very good job in creating a generation who realised that there probably isn't anyone who's going to give me my happily ever after. I'm going to have to get it. And I think that's a very important skill. I think what I was really saying was more that the associations we have of hope and then we put them in into these like physical appearances I guess that the, it's great that they have this hope element and this magical element but the way they make children associate it with these beauty standards especially in the earlier ones um, then leads children to think that their hope is in beauty standards and that's where they look for it that's where they try and find this hope and I think that's really where I I sort of see a problem. I think if we, of course, there's, there's issues of representation and all that stuff, but as Disney as a company itself, it, it, is, it is a business based on escapism and the only thing, the thing which makes Disney Disney is escapism and that, that fantastical magic or what do they say, make magic or magic memories. I mean, there's parks all over the world dedicated, you know, where you can go for a day and escape from the real world. You're, you're um, surrounded by, you know, fantasies and all this sort of magic, which you you never get in the real world, would you? Um, and that's basically what what I think Disney's based off. And despite problems with representation and all that stuff, Disney needs to know that they have a formula which works. I think Disney has this formula which really works. This prince princess. They're, they're varying away from it now, but they did for a long time have this formula which worked really well. And Disney, as seen by the amount of companies it's bought out in the last few years, is a business. They 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 want to get the revenue in. They want to get people in the cinemas. And having an archetype, having stereotypical characters, which people can easily recognise, which people can resonate with, people who can get their head around really easy, is perfect for their business model. So um, I think, of course, we have to bear that in mind. <laughs> yeah, I I think that that's that's definitely you know. At the end of the day, Disney is a business, um, and sure, they, they've definitely had issues with representation, like we've been saying, <laughs> with all the older, older Disney princess films. Um, but like Katrina just rightly said, they have a model that works. You know, this idea of the Disney princess and then the prince, and you know that element of magic, whether it be a fairy godmother or, um, I don't know, whatever else they want to put in. The little firefly in, in the, the princess in the fire. Oh, oh no, don't mm. love her. <laughs> so the way he dies at the end. Oh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, sorry. <laughs> you, you haven't seen that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it does, it does work. And um, 
Disney does definitely need that that money so they can continue to do what they do. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, it's really important that maybe, maybe we shouldn't just put so much emphasis either on what Disney does, but also just let it open up a conversation as well at home. I think, um, yes, 100% the studio has a duty responsibility to present their characters in a certain way, 100%, but at the exact same time, you know, uh, parents sitting down with their children being like, uh, I, I read one article where Kristen Bell sits down with her daughters after they might watch Snow White, for example, and she asked them, isn't it a bit weird that the prince just kisses Snow White without her consent? You know, she's asleep, you don't, you don't do that. We have these modern beliefs and these modern ideals and we understand the, the issues of consent that wasn't around back in those times, I definitely think that having this um, this opportunity to then discuss why parents might not be so happy with the characters is also really important and opens up a very healthy discussion. And not only that, this idea that, um, I was reading another article um, about another lady who's also a mother now, and you know, she grew up on the Disney princesses as did most people. Uh, and, you know, she she still believes in fighting for her own destiny and all of that, and that's something she instills in her own children. But it's not completely on Disney's shoulders to to make people aware that it's, you know, that it's, it's not gonna be prince, because like Katrina was saying, it is based on escapism. Um, so I do think having a conversation at home would also be really important, but just going back to one of the, the main focal points of this entire podcast is the idea that, again, I don't, I don't necessarily think that, first of all, the older Disney princesses are a wholly bad, yeah, representation of two young girls, or of role models, two young girls, but also, you know, the criticism that they get, I don't think is wholly justifiable. I think, you know, there are so many different aspects to a Disney movie. There are so many things we need to look at within a Disney movie um, that creates a Disney movie. And so I think, yeah, I just don't think that the way they've been bashed, the Disney princesses, as terrible role models, I think is wholly fair to them? I think 100%. I'm not going to let my kid... I'm not... not hang on, let me rephrase this. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to stop my kids from watching Disney movies because I think they have like good morals and I think they have good stories. And I, having watched them later on in life, enjoy them. I'm not going to say otherwise. But I think what you raised, the point you raised about like having a discussion with your child about it is also really important that they know right from the offset that this is what Disney is trying to portray if you're looking at a really old Disney movie because I think they're really cool. I really like like Snow White and stuff. So um, if I'm going to show my kid that, I'll, just, I'll also talk to them about this is what it's trying to say, good versus evil. And that's like such... A, a key story in like the entirety of our society and has been over generations and generations and generations as humans. Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of 
good versus evil can be seen back from the very first stories that were ever invented. It's just, it's such a key theme, this idea of injustice and justice. Uh, you know, they're considered probably some of the only universalizable truths of humanity that we don't like injustice and we fight for justice. I think that, yeah, the, the older Disney princesses whilst they definitely have their faults and you could go on and on and on about that as people have i think we need to also understand and recognize that they're not terrible characters they're just like katrina very rightly said a different representation to young girls currently and completely a product of their time but the morals that they hold at their core their center are still morals i think people should adopt now this idea of inner beauty is just as important as outward beauty in that you can hold a sword and also be very kind and gentle at the same time and it's that balance that makes a disney princess and maybe that will be the next disney princess um, i hope so <laughs> <laughs> but yes that has been our podcast thank you for listening uh, and we hope you enjoyed that join us next time. Hello and welcome to the WGS Humanities podcast, Well Spoken, and today we'll be talking about In Defence of Cinderella. I'm Sophia and I'm here with Saba, Adam, Zaina, Katrina, Lucy. So Cinderella is a really famous fairy tale. It's probably the most well-known and she's one of the most well-known Disney princesses. Zaina, could you please tell me more about the story? Um, so Cinderella is an anti-feminist story uh, because of the representation of gender inequality through patriarchy and objectification. Patriarchy, according to Joe Santillan of the University of California, is a system where male-dominated structures and social arrangement cause oppression of women. This is exhibited in Cinderella through the concept of her living happily ever after, after getting married to the prince. In this context, Cinderella fulfills the damsel in distress archetype, whereas the prince is represented as the hero. Regardless of the fact that he had no role to play in her initial rebellion from her family and her will um, and desire to change her situation, the story is sort of wrapped up as if her deep-rooted issues disappeared through the arrival of a male figure. In addition to this, Cinderella is objectified through her role as the winner of the prince's affections, because of her beauty. The prince wishes to dance with her just because he found her the most attractive. Um, and also he fails to ask her of her name uh, and about her life, which is shown through his difficulties in finding her after the ball. Okay, so you mentioned that Cinderella is an anti-feminist story. And um, for so many decades, especially the golden age Disney princesses, as they're known, which is Snow White, Cinderella and Aurora, they've been criticised heavily as being sort of these terrible role models for young girls and I think one of the things we should explore is definitely their flaws but also this idea that are they truly as bad a role model for young girls as people say? So does anyone have any thoughts on that? I think the presentation of the princesses is far from perfect. Uh, ironically, they're sort of presented as these perfect ideals. They've all got 
stereotypically beautiful faces and they've all got skinny waists etc etc which is such a bad representation of all girls for young girls and boys to be to be seeing but in contrast to this you also see that while their actual presentation outwardly may not be great the moral stories behind it are often more acceptable like their their good virtues versus the ugly sisters who are narcissistic and greedy versus the the hard worker cinderella i think we can almost rectify them a little bit in that sense i think based on morals they all three of them of course of the three cinderella has probably the best morals the most clear-cut morals of you know being kind and you know divine retribution or some sort of karma will come to um, people who have wronged you but um, of course they are a product of their time we have to remember that these were written in the 30s through 50s Cinderella coming out in 51 or 54 I can't remember um, and of course gender stereotypes and gender roles were much different back then uh, I think what what Disney was trying to go for I don't know, I don't know who it was but um, was kind of it wasn't thinking about the sort of role of Cinderella and the role of women in it. it was, he was kind of focusing on the fact that he wanted children to see her as kind, as good, as um, beautiful inside, even though she was beautiful on the outside as well, but as a morally good character, a great role model for girls. He wasn't really thinking about, you know, the situation she went through. She was thinking of how she persevered through the situation, through being kind and being a good person. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with what the both of you said when it comes to the morals behind these stories. I think one thing that lets these princesses down is the fact that so many people focus on almost the surface of the movie. This idea that, oh, um, you know, like you were saying, skinny waists and very beautiful and almost very passive. Um, but when you actually do go deeper under the surface of the movie. I think you are met with these princesses who did persevere through a lot of their hardships and struggles. I think especially in regards to Cinderella, you know, we have to understand that she was an abuse victim. She had a very abusive family and there's a scene within Cinderella which I think is quite poignant. It's when the stepsisters destroy her dress and as as they're about to destroy it, just before that, Cinderella's stepmother approaches her and she visibly shrinks back, showing that there could have potentially been genuine physical abuse. I mean, that's a natural re reaction or response, you know, flinching, going back when someone approaches you if they have been physically abusive. Now, obviously, we don't know that, um, and that might be reading too much into it, but the fact that she's still so kind to her sisters and to her stepmother and the fact that she um you know she she can be good throughout that entire situation i still think is a very positive attribute of her character and i think it's a very strong attribute of her character and i don't think that should be brushed aside just because we can't seem to look past the surface and, and yeah to just mirror what you said i think 100% if we, we have to take a, a different viewpoint on this um, because they are all the characters falling into an archetype 
you know, 100%, she has to be the, the good heroine, the person everybody roots for, to then be a foil for, you know, evil stepsisters to make them look worse. Um, and as a anti-feminist story, I think we also have to look at the flip side of things and look at, you know, the presentation of the prince and how the prince is present, presented. I mean, he, he doesn't re even have a name. He is Prince Charming. Um, he, he doesn't have any scenes which give any character to him. At least Cinderella gets, you know, to be kind and good. The, the prince is just an archetype of a, of a prince. He is the Prince Charming, the one who Cinderella marries. Um, and although, you know, we're not getting great representation for Cinderella in, in regards to having a complex, um, you know, personality, a, a real human personality, I think we have to remember that these, these are stereotypes, these are for kids, and they want to see, you know, good, they want to see bad, they want to see the prince, they want to see the princess, and that's just kind of how Disney kind of worked for a very long time, up until recently, when they've only started out to become like, you know, Frozen, and more modern Disney movies, which show, you know, love in a different way, you know, you know, familiarity love, you know, brothers and sisters, and, you know, complex longing, and, you know, Elsa not being satisfied with her life, you know, so I think we have to bear that in mind. I mean, I think also that because these films are made primarily for children, and children can only understand so much about the world, I think the way in which they're presented almost as a metaphor for the prevalence of good over evil is one which children can grasp really easily visually, and I think that's one of the reasons why Disney has made, like, for example, the witch who's who's green and hunched over and has a long nose and is covered in a black cape versus the princess who is, like we've said, all these stereotypical beauty ideals. Um, but I wonder how damaging that actually is to kids who, who yes, see the one side of the princess as being good versus the evil, um, but then them learning in response to that, that good and evil being presented in such a visual way they actually learned that being good is to be beautiful and being bad is to be what is considered by society ugly. I don't think she was considered beautiful just because of the way she looked. I think she was considered beautiful because of the way she presented herself and yeah. through her actions as well. So I think because it's a kid's story, it teaches like young kids, especially girls, that you should always be kind and nice, even if people like... Ugly, the ugly stepsisters are horrible to you because in the end, which we see, she gets, she gets, she gets freed from the abusiveness. So I think it just teaches kids that you should always be try to be kind and nice, even if you don't necessarily feel like it's gonna do anything. If you look at modern interpretations of Cinderella and live action interpretations, the ugly stepsisters are not stereotypically ugly, they're not people you'd look at and say they are, by Eurocentric standards, ugly. They, they are beautiful women. The ugly has been changed over time from what I think might have been a, a physical attribute to something which is more inside, that they are ugly at heart because they are they are cruel and they are mean to Cinderella. And I think um, that's what I think Disney was trying to get at, mainly if you look at the film. Anastasia and Drusilla are not ugly. They're not ugly. They're not as beautiful as Cinderella by Eurocentric standards, but they are... They're not ugly. What makes them ugly is their personality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well we see that in Snow White, who I have to say is a very forgotten Disney princess. <laughs> um, but we have in the beginning the evil queen. Now, 
I've watched this movie so many times. I'm such a huge Disney fan. And anytime I watch this movie, I don't think the evil queen is actually ugly. Like when you look at her in her genuine form, she's actually a very beautiful woman. And that's what I think, that's one of the things I really like about Snow White, this idea that throughout the entire movie, Disney's reinforcing that kindness equals beauty because it is Snow White's kindness that saves her from the huntsman. It's her kindness that uh, convinces the dwarves to help her. It's her kindness that really, well, obviously the prince and that is very problematic. We could talk about that. But, <laughs> um, you know, it is one of the main things in that is that it's her kindness. You know, when um, the evil queen dresses her in rags to try and diminish her beauty, and then she goes to the mirror and she, you know, she asks Mirror who is the fairest of them all. And the mirror responds with Snow White, you know, saying nothing can hide her gentle grace. And it's showing that really kindness is what makes a person beautiful. It's these wonderful, positive characteristics that we can see of the princesses that is what contributes to their beauty. And one thing that I find interesting is that, you know, a lot of these traits that the Disney princesses have tend to be stereotypically feminine traits. So they, they tend to be kind, they tend to be um, nice, and it shouldn't be a stereotypically feminine thing, that should just be a human thing, and obviously we could do an entire other podcast on that, but um, it is a stereotypically feminine trait, and it's interesting that they get bashed for that. Their niceness, their positivity is either seen as naive, naivety, ignorance, being a pushover, for example, and then in later renditions of the Disney princess archetype, you see them adopt much more masculine traits, and then they're being praised for being these strong, independent her heroines. And it's kind of interesting, this idea that we're still reinforcing, it seems, to young girls that to get anywhere in life, you need to adopt these masculine traits to be seen as equal. I think um, the way in which the Disney princesses are presented sort of goes along with, for example, when we had back in the 1950s when society was much more about traditional values, we see more of the, like you said, um, the traditional sort of feminine values of the princesses and then later on Disney's trying to again adapt to the society. Um, and I guess, in what way do you think the children who are viewing these in, in either society are going to be affected by these two, for example, people who've seen both films, who've lived through both eras of the Disney uh, world, in what way do you think that's going to affect people's views of these princesses and views of themselves? Because I think people tend to look at themselves almost as protagonists, just, mm -hmm. just as that's the way we identify with stories as humans. In what way do you think that will be positive or negative uh, for the viewer? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's it's a good point looking at yourself as the protagonist in these stories and how that uh, affects you in your own perception of good and evil, but not only that, beauty as well. And I suppose the easiest thing that I can do in answer to that question is really just think about how I felt when I watched them as a child. I think as you get older, you know, appearance becomes... A, such a more important factor in a person's life you all of a sudden 
realize that you look a certain way and that society wants you to look a certain way and if you don't meet that then you're not beautiful but I think as a five-year-old a six-year-old that idea of appearance wasn't in my mind it wasn't you know I wasn't thinking oh uh pale fair skin skinny waist blonde hair or that all that that's what made one beautiful in fact when I was watching these films it was more of this idea that oh they're just really really nice and they're really really kind and um you know they they do get the prints which I don't think is wrong you know this idea that uh women can find love and be the the creators of their own destiny but um definitely for me appearance wasn't a huge factor it's as I get older that you know and and appearance becomes more and more of a focus that I look back and I think you know people start to look back and think well this is such a negative image because obviously they have these tiny waists and they have um this very stereotypically beautiful appearance uh, dependent on on standards of a society but it's not the fact that but it like that only that realisation only came as I got older and I think that's where a lot of the hate comes from, especially in regards to their appearance. That as we grow up, or as you know, you get older and you get more aware of what society would like you to look like, especially for women, you know, this objectification and the fact that girls are greatly judged by how beautiful they are, that women are judged by their appearance. Um, you look back and you think, well, that was a really problematic image. But whilst watching it as a child, it's not, I didn't connect those two dots. I don't know if that's the same for everybody else, but... But I feel that's almost even more problematic that the children aren't able to realise that there are further implications of these stories, that there is a societal beauty standard that is pushed forward within these stories that they aren't able to realise as kids. And so as they get older, they're able to look back in retrospect and realise that it was problematic. But that doesn't mean it wasn't problematic as children. It means that they only realised that as they got older. But children are really impressionable. And the things you put forward to them... I know I wasn't exposed to much television when I was younger at all. Um, and the only Disney programmes I watched were in Spanish, and I used to hate that because I couldn't understand what they were saying. But I think maybe even more so because I just couldn't understand what they were saying. All I was watching was these one ugly character, stereotypically ugly character, one stereotypically beautiful character, and the prince comes in and lives happily ever after. And I think watching that as a kid, I think almost I did have this idea of beauty standards from a, perhaps a younger age than you, I don't know. Because I remember feeling that when I was a kid quite strongly. Yeah. So I don't know where that... Well, for me, I I think we're kind of lucky in, in the sense of when we grew up, that we were growing up when, you know, the renaissance of Disney was happening. It was just, it was just kind of getting towards the end of it. And we had, you know, we had much stronger Disney characters. We had, you know, the first ever Native American representation we had Pocahontas not the greatest representation in hindsight we had some <laughs> representation um you know um we had uh, you know Beauty and the Beast with Belle we had um most notably probably Mulan which I think 
probably the first Asian character. I'd like to say it was. Don't quote me on that. Um, but I, I was lucky that I grew up with that. That being said, I ended up loving Sleeping Beauty, and Aurora is my favourite fairy tale, which is quite anti-feminist of me, but it was my favourite story. And personally, from my perspective, I never really saw the problem with it. I think I only started to realise when, when you know, you'd talk to your friends about all... What you, what you used to like as a kid and they'd be like oh I was all for Mulan and for strength and for you know fighting and I was like I loved those stories but personally I didn't want to identify with them because I wasn't a masculine girl I wasn't somebody who wanted to fight who wanted to um, any sort of physical violence I was somebody who wanted you know I, I did as a kid I wanted that happily ever after I wanted you know to feel beautiful and that and that's what kind of resonated with Sleeping Beauty for me. I didn't realise, it didn't really affect me in the same way. I didn't really realise that, looking back on it, she she goes to sleep for a few years and then is brought back <laughs> by a prince and it's not, it's not the greatest representation. Um, but as a kid, it didn't affect me in the way I think we're talking about. Um, I, I didn't have this, or, or not consciously, I didn't have this bias towards beautiful people because, you know, I think I took a lot of inspiration from people in my family and all, and all this sort of stuff, but um, I, I, I did have access to every single, you know, one of the Disney films, but that and um, Beauty and the Beast is what got, and Beauty and the Beast is one of Disney's, I think, one of their best, <laughs> because I think it's the first time they kind of addressed straightforward, the sort of being beautiful inside and Belle not being a, a pushover. I don't like that word, but the problem arises when people try and compare you know, later Disney princesses with early Disney princesses and say, oh, the, all the other Disney princesses, they were naive and they, they were pushovers. And like you said, they were they were bad representations for young girls. They're not bad representations. I just think they, they're different. They're a different time of different girls. They're both beautiful inside and out. That's the, the typical Disney trait, that, that all the Disney princesses are kind and caring people. It's just that they're from a different time and a different period. I think we have to take that into account. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I think what you're saying about Beauty and the Beast, I think it's a good example because it does actually look at the, the outward appearances of, for example, your handsome prince, who's actually a beast. He's, he's outwardly not, like, he's not even human. And yet he has these human characteristics that are eventually brought out by the end of the, I know I said novel then, <laughs> the end of the film. Um, and I think that's a good way to show kids that people do do bad things and can do bad things, but that doesn't make them a bad person. And certainly the outward appearance does not make them a bad person. And, like, yeah, it's a good story. And I think in comparison to something like Aurora, which is harder to see the moral message of it, I think, and also that, that Belle herself is is this humble. I remember my dad reading this story to me when I was younger uh, and I remember being so taken aback because she had like seven siblings or something and the father goes off and has a holiday or I don't know where he goes but all her siblings are asking for all of these massive and marvellous gifts and she asks for a single rose and I thought that was like that's what struck me and I guess hearing these stories, fairy tales, when I was listening to them and being read them rather than seeing them in a film, I guess my image of these these princesses was more to do with their virtues because I couldn't see their outward appearance through a novel. 
but I know that I did see them through other means. And that's where I sort of got these two, almost the film Cinderella to me is a completely different Cinderella than I read in a book. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I definitely strongly agree with that, like with what you both said with um, Beauty and the Beast being such a good representation um, of, of this idea that it's not just um, you know, outward lust. It really literally did tackle Don't Judge a Book by its cover um, and looked at, you know, it was the fact that he changed his heart that got rid of this ugly outward appearance. It was his love for Belle and it was this, you know, this beautiful, complete change in him that that brings about um, his princely form again. Um, and I like that idea, the fact that, you know, there can be... There is a prince or a princess in in almost everyone. Uh, it's it's not purely the outward appearance of them, but also the characteristics that they show. Um, and I think that is such an important message to to young children. Um, but I think, like you were saying, Katrina, that. It is different representation. The early Disney princesses are definitely a product of their time, just like the newer Disney princesses are a product of right now when the ideals and beliefs we hold now. Um, and obviously you, could, you can talk about all the very problematic things that are definitely within the older um, Disney Disney princess films because there are definitely issues like the issue with consent and and everything there as well and when you look at the original fairy tales they're based on it's a bit <laughs> it's very dodgy yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we should bring up Ariel yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe we should talk about that next but um, I also do agree with this idea that it is different representation as well mm -hmm. I don't think we should completely brush aside um, these wonderful inward characteristics for outward bravery and and you know for a girl holding a sword in her hand I think that's really important to show young girls that yeah you can fight the dragon if you want to but um, that's not all you have to do to be a princess a princess isn't just strong and courageous on the outside but also on the inside she's just as beautiful and I think that when you you look past the flaws of the early Disney princesses, you definitely do see that, and I think that's a positive of them. I don't think it's fair, the the harsh criticism they get, I don't think they're wholly terrible. I think, like I've been saying, you know, there's definitely things that we can discuss that needs addressing, but um, at the exact same time, I think that they're definitely useful to young girls and there needs to be this balance between uh, an inward appearance just as much as, well, we don't really need to focus on the outward appearance, but the fact that you can be strong and courageous on the outside, just like you can be strong and courageous on the inside. I think um, what you're talking about, the, like we mentioned earlier, the different time periods in which Disney has evolved through. Um, 
I've been reading for my EPP this book by a guy called, ironically, Christopher Booker. Um, <laughs> but he um, lays out these seven basic plots that are meant to underlie basically every story that's ever existed, bar a few. So in Animal Farm, Old Major, a prize-winning boar, gathers all the animals of Manor Farm for a meeting, in which he tells them of a dream he has where animals live together with no humans to control or suppress them. They are enthusiastic, and three days later, Snowball, Napoleon, and Squealer, three young pigs, formulate his principles into a philosophy called animalism. They manage to overthrow Mr. Jones in a battle and dedicate themselves to achieving Major's dream, renaming it Animal Farm. At first, Animal Farm is successful, and they manage to defeat Mr. Jones again when he comes back. However, the pigs begin to have disagreements over power and influence, and eventually Napoleon sends the dogs, he's so-called trained, on Snowball and assumes leadership of the entire farm. He calls off all meetings with animals and ends up exploiting them just as Mr. Jones did. The novel ends with the pigs behaving and even dressing like humans. Ultimately, they turned into the exact thing that they were trying to get rid of in the first place. Okay, so we're going to be discussing memory and how the novel is an allegory for communism. Um, so, to what extent does Orwell employ themes of memory, memory to perpetuate the idea that history will always repeat itself? And do you think this is the main theme, or is there a different theme to the novel? Well, I think the main theme isn't history repeating itself. I think what he's trying to get across is that despite this utopian society we might all work towards, we are still humans and we still have human nature. And thus, when we get power, we are corrupted by it. even the best of us. I mean, the pigs start out as naive but good and they have good intentions. But even in the end, Napoleon becomes a dictator-like figure who kills multiple animals on the farm in his quest for power. Also, on the topic of memory, almost all of the animals, apart from the pigs, have very bad memories, so they weren't able to remember things of like major significance, such as like uh, the pigs saying that they should build the windmill over and over again, and using that multiple times. And, I mean, in my opinion, the memory of the animals in Animal Farm is not suppressed, but just unreliable, as they are animals, and they're not the most intelligent creatures. The pigs manage to take advantage of this memory problem and they also make changes in the seven commandments that had been established when the animals took control over the farm to like gain more power. So do you think it's the animals' ignorance almost that ends up in the power being able to corrupt or do you think it's the, the power of the pigs themselves? Not necessarily their ignorance but more their naivety yeah. in their blind trust of Napoleon who like Fiona says, assumes, controls the farm. And also this idea that they can't read or write. Their memory is bad, and that does allow them to be easily manipulated. The pigs are the cleverest, smartest animals on the farm, and that's why they manage to convince all the other animals to follow them and to do what they say. It's said multiple times throughout the novel that the pigs are very persuasive, very articulate, and have this eloquence to their speech that is very convincing and helps helps them to get their ideas across and their points across. I don't think it's their ignorance, though I think 
naivety can be argued to be ignorance, but I think it's more that they're just, they're so reliant on Napoleon and the pigs to lead them. And this fear of Mr. Jones coming back who so badly treated them that they don't, they'd rather give up their freedoms to stop Mr. Jones from coming back. And, you know, just go on, go on with their life, listening to Napoleon. So I suppose you could argue it is ignorance to an extent, but I think it's more so naivety than anything. It's a recurring theme in most of Orwell, uh, George Orwell's work, the sort of uh, naivety which gives way to uh, dictatorships and oppressive authorities, you know, seen in his, his later work, like literally like a few years after with uh, 1984 when it's Big Brother, you know, exact same sort of thing, erasing the past. It's something which he likes to play with and it's really interesting when you see it in two different settings. Yeah, controlling speech and language. Yeah. Also the way the, the pigs make them confess, almost as if they remember having done something which they haven't even done, which is so similar to 1984, um, in which people are made to confess as well to things that they haven't done, and also believe it. Um, I sort of looked up the part where... Oh no, hang on. How do I start it? Okay. Just say. Or do you want me to ask you to like <coughs> elaborate on memory? Just say what you want to say. Just, there's definitely dispute between the pigs. Um, so further on in the play, the play, why do I keep saying the pigs? Sorry. You can start again. Start that again. Okay. Shake. Don't end it, and then we can so we yeah. can like cut this out. So in Animal Farm, Old Major, a prize-winning boar, gathers all the animals of Manor Farm for a meeting, in which he tells them of a dream he has where animals live together with no humans to control or suppress them. They are enthusiastic, and three days later, Snowball, Napoleon, and Squealer, three young pigs, formulate his principles into a philosophy called animalism. They manage to overthrow Mr. Jones in a battle and dedicate themselves to achieving Major's dream, renaming it Animal Farm. At first, Animal Farm is successful, and they manage to defeat Mr. Jones again when he comes back. However, the pigs begin to have disagreements over power and influence, and eventually Napoleon said, sends the dogs, he's so-called trained, on Snowball and assumes leadership of the entire farm. He calls off all meetings with animals and ends up exploiting them just as Mr. Jones did. The novel ends with the pigs behaving and even dressing like humans. Ultimately, they turned into the exact thing that they were trying to get rid of in the first place. Okay, so we're going to be discussing memory and how the novel is an allegory for communism. Um, so, to what extent does Orwell employ themes of memory, memory to perpetuate the idea that history will always repeat itself? And do you think this is the main theme, or is there a different theme to the novel? Well, I think the main theme isn't history repeating itself. I think what he's trying to get across is that despite this utopian society might all work towards, we are still humans and we still have human nature. And thus, when we get power, we are corrupted by even the best of us. I mean, the pigs start out as naive, but good, and they have good intentions. But even in the end, Napoleon becomes a dictator-like figure who kills multiple animals on the farm in his quest for power.
Also, on the topic of memory, almost all of the animals, apart from the pigs, have very bad memory, so they weren't able to remember things of like major significance, such as like uh, the pigs saying that they should build the windmill over and over again, and using that multiple times. And, I mean, in my opinion, the memory of the animals in Animal Farm is not suppressed, but just unreliable, as they are animals, and they're not the most intelligent creatures. The pigs managed to take advantage of this memory problem, and they also make changes in the seven commandments that had been established when the animals took control over the farm to like gain more power. So do you think it's the animal's ignorance almost that ends up in the power being able to corrupt, or do you think it's the, the power of the pigs themselves? Not necessarily their ignorance, but more their naivety yeah. in their blind trust of Napoleon, who, like Fiona says, assumes controls the farm. And also this idea that they can't read or write. Their memory is bad, and that does allow them to be easily manipulated. The pigs are the cleverest, smartest animals on the farm, and that's why they manage to convince all the other animals to follow them and to do what they say. It's said multiple times throughout the novel that the pigs are very persuasive, very articulate, and have this eloquence to their speech that is very convincing and helps helps them to get their ideas across and their points across. I don't think it's their ignorance, though I think naivety can be argued to be ignorant, but I think it's more that they're just, they're so reliant on Napoleon and the pigs to lead them and this fear of Mr Jones coming back who so badly treated them that they don't, they'd rather give up their freedoms to stop Mr Jones from coming back and, you know, just go on, go on with their life listening to Napoleon. So I suppose you could argue it is ignorance to an extent, but I think it's more so naivety than anything. It's a recurring theme in most of George Orwell's uh, work, the sort of uh, naivety which gives way to uh, dictatorships and oppressive authorities, you know, seen in his, his later work, like literally like a few years after with uh, 1984 when yeah. it's Big Brother, you know, exact mm. same sort of thing, erasing the past. It's something which he likes to play with and it's really interesting when you see it in two different settings. Yeah, controlling speech and language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also the way the, the pigs make them confess, almost as if they remember having done something which they haven't even done which is so similar to 1984 um, in which people are made to confess as well to things that they haven't done and also believe it um i sort of looked up the part where oh no, hang on. how do i start it okay just say. or do you want me to ask you to like <coughs> elaborate on memory just say what you want to say hang on it was just there's definitely dispute between the pigs um, so further on in the play, the play, why do I keep saying the pigs? Sorry. You can start again, start that again. Okay. Shake it. Do you want to end it and then we can, so we yeah. can like cut this out? I, no, uh, you can say okay, end it and then 